As we're concluding this, this look at Matthew's gospel, then I want to take us uh, through the, the last of Jesus' sort of five discourses or sermons or teachings. We looked at the Sermon of the Mount way back at the beginning of this series. We spent some time looking at Jesus' sermon on mission and sending out in Matthew 10. We looked at his kingdom stories or parables back in chapter 13. And last week, we talked about Jesus' message or sermon for the church and our lives together. And so here in Matthew, starting in 23, 24, and then in 25, Jesus' last big teaching before we reach um, the event of his passion and betrayal and crucifixion, Jesus saves this this block uh, to give us an important teaching. And these chapters are Jesus' teaching on hamsters. This is a three-chapter three discourse on small rodents and pets. Okay, so maybe not. Right? I was just seeing if you're awake out there, especially if you're a grade schooler. thought I would slip in a surprise for us this morning. Because Jesus' ministry routinely capitalizes on the element of surprise in his teaching and preaching. I shared last month that there are many surprising moments in the Gospels. There are many surprising people who make their way into the Gospels and Jesus' entourage. And there are plenty of surprising stories. And so the last bit of Jesus' teaching here, the last long teaching he has in this Gospel, relies on this element of surprise. There is a a woman who started a a significant business about a decade ago. She works in sort of the corporate world in Silicon Valley and on Wall Street. Her name is uh, Tanya Lunya. And her whole business strategy is to help corporations and people leverage the element of surprise in, in learning and transforming kind of what they do and how they do it. And in her research in this area, she talks about how human beings are sort of hardwired to do three things after they experience a surprising moment. She says the first thing that human beings do when they encounter a surprise is their brain actually freezes. And they can, they can quantify this. They'd say for about 1 25th of a second, all other cognitive activity ceases. You, you literally just sort of freeze up. And every bit of of cognitive and emotional energy gets funneled into sort of taking stock of or or, or creating an awareness of what has just happened. So maybe you had a a very minor version of that when you saw that hamster picture pop up. And you're like, what's Dave doing? Is he having a a breakdown up there? What's going on? Immediately after that moment of, of freezing, though, she talks about how our brains then move on to finding. We're we're wired to become intensely curious after the moment of surprise, to figure out what just happened, why it's happening, to make sense of this surprise, right? And so maybe you listen closer for a few moments after you saw that picture pop up and and trying to figure out, again, make, make sense or locate what was going on. And then she says, and maybe this is the most sort of constructive element to surprises, she said that as we calm back down from a moment of surprise, we are, at least it's possible for us to make a shift after that surprise. 
We're invited to shift the way we see a particular person or a set of circumstances, whatever was connected to the thing that surprised us. Surprises invite us to make a shift so that we won't be caught off guard again to the, to the same extent or in the same way we just were. And so in a couple weeks when I hand over my preaching duties to Dom and I'm headed out on sabbatical, maybe you'll be shifting and, and sort of guarded that Dom might be launching into an extended series on hamsters. I don't know, maybe that's what he's got prepared. See if you're prepared for what comes next. But as we go into Matthew 25 today, of course, he's not going to be talking about hamsters. He's going to be talking about his return. He's talking about the, the end of history itself. What it will be like when he comes again, both with great redemption, but also with judgment. And so not only does he tell a, a series of stories that all have this in common, they're about his return, but every single one of those stories relies on a surprise ending. Something that we don't expect, or at least someone in the story is not expecting to take place. And so as we hear them, let's invite the word of God to, to freeze us where it needs to, to help us find the heart of God, the nature of God's kingdom, and also to shift us and to, to help us respond appropriately in the, the way we move forward from these words of Jesus. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray if these stories are too familiar that you'd interrupt that familiarity. Lord, I pray that you would open our ears and our eyes to your heart. Let it, let it surprise us. Let it make us uncomfortable. Let it inspire hope and gratitude and vision for how we walk together. I pray that the words of my mouth as I teach, may the meditations of our hearts together be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This is the beginning of Matthew 25. Again, Jesus has been teaching for several chapters here about what things will be like in the time to come. Here he continues that. He says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and for you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day 
for the hour. First part of Matthew 25 describes a wedding scene, or, or what comes just before that in Jesus' context. And most weddings, even in our day, don't start on time, right? There's always some kind of delay. Someone's still getting ready. Something's still like lingering on, and, and we're waiting for things to kick off. But in Jesus' day, a, a wedding was not just an hour in a church sanctuary. A wedding might last an entire week. There was all kinds of preparation taking place, meals to get ready for, you know, a house to be prepared, a whole village to be invited. But those, those celebrations all began with one initial moment. And that was when the bridegroom would arrive at the bride's home. And they would start their journey into a future life together. And so at that moment, right, there's great anticipation. And, and when the bridegroom finally came, then everyone needed to be ready for, for the, the week of celebration and feasting to begin. Jesus tells us this story because he wants us to, to see the surprise in the bridegroom's timing. Jesus is telling us that the timing, not only of this bridegroom, but the timing of his own return is, is going to be something that we cannot control, that we cannot anticipate. Christians have invested all kinds of energy and thought into trying to, to manage or, or chart out what the end times are going to be like, when Jesus can, can return, how we can predict more accurately when that's going to take place. But Jesus says, in, in the end, it will ultimately come to us as a surprise. And if it's something that we cannot control, that we cannot manage, that we cannot dictate, then this story tells us what we are called to instead is a kind of vigilance, a watchfulness, even a hopefulness about the thing that is coming, about the one who is coming to us. And in, in our watchfulness, we have to be careful not to be distracted, not to become careless with the direction our lives are pointed, the things we're hoping for, the things we're investing in. Jesus tells us that we are going to be a people who experience this, this waiting time. But that our choices during that period of waiting matter. And I think there's a way that we could read this one parable and think, well, really, the rest of our Christian lives are just kind of about standing around waiting for something to happen, for Jesus to come back. That's what, that's what ultimately matters. But I think to guard against that soul interpretation, Jesus then tells a second story that's designed to help us see how we remain vigilant, what we are to do during this maybe lengthy period of waiting for him. Look at verse 14. Jesus says, again, my coming or that day of my coming will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. 
the man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five, and he said, Master, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. And his master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. Then the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received only one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And so I was afraid. I went and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. And whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think the second story Jesus tells here ultimately comes down to a matter of trust. There's a lot of dynamics about trust happening in this story. If I was to to put it in a a modern context, we might imagine as parents going away, maybe going out of town for a weekend, and sending your, your teenage son or daughter to the supermarket with your credit card. to to buy groceries and and to prepare things to cook while you're away. Right now, as a parent, you could give them an extensive list of exactly what they're to buy and how much of it and how to prepare it. But if they're a teenager, right, they're growing in their sense of responsibility, I think it's, it's fair to assume that they should have noticed what you do day in and day out going to the supermarket. Right? What kind of appetites you've instilled in them, what kind of habits, what instincts you have. And so you might hand over the credit card to them, and you would be entrusting them to make good decisions, wise decisions with your line of credit. 
In verse 14, we're told that in this context, there was a master right, of, of some importance, of some, of some wealth, who is preparing to go away for what sounds to be a rather lengthy journey. And so before he goes, it says he entrusted his wealth into the hands of his servants, which is a, a gutsy move. But it's a move that communicates trust in them, confidence in them. Right? This master assumes that, that having lived with him, having served him for, for many years, that they would know how he handles his affairs and would be able to begin to do that themselves. Right? This is an opportunity for them to, to grow into that responsibility. And we can see from the text that follows that, that this master is someone who likes to put his money to work in the community. He's used to investing it in people and in opportunities and in commerce. He likes to, to see his, his wealth strategically invested and then returned and then reinvested in new places. Right, he sounds like the modern equivalent of an entrepreneur. And I've, I've known several entrepreneurs over the years, and most of them don't particularly love spending their money on themselves. What they get excited about is, is seeing their money right, create opportunities, seeing their money develop success or growth in other people, watching them flourish. So we're told that when the master finally comes back from his time away, the first two servants come and say to him, you entrusted us with this much. And because you trusted us with it, we followed suit. We did what we've seen you do. We entrusted it to others who grew it and who multiplied it while you were gone. And so here, here is a return, not on what we did, but on your trust in us, they say. And the master couldn't be happier. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. In them, his trust was well-placed. But then we come to the third servant. And it says, instead of putting the one bag of gold he'd been given, the talent of gold he'd been given, to work, instead he puts it to sleep. He gives it a proper burial. And he goes and he hides the money the master has given him in a hole. And he waits out the master's time away. And notice in, in his conversation with the master as he comes back and, and the account is settled, he never mentions feeling entrusted with the master's wealth. In fact, quite the opposite. What he says is, when you gave me this money, it made me feel afraid. It made me feel worried about what could go wrong with it. And so he goes and he digs the bag of gold out of the ground. He knocks the dust off of it. And he hands it back to the master, just like it came to him. Right? He says, here's what you gave me, not a penny more, not a penny less. Right? It's kept it safe, kept it in the ground. The surprising element in this second story, though, comes with the master's accounting of this last servant. And I think Jesus wants us to see that this servant has missed the point of his master's trust entirely. 
I imagine this servant could have taken the money and, and lost it all in a risky venture or proposition. And even there, at least the master could have been proud of his effort to do something. He says to him, he could have at least taken it to the local bankers, and they would have made investments on his behalf. At least you could have done that much. But instead, it says that, that this man took a talent of gold, which would, would be about 20 years worth of wages, and he just sat on it the whole time his master was away. Put it in the ground. Never put it to work. Never put it out into the community. And according to his master, this was not wisdom. This was not prudence. The master interprets this as fear and laziness. So he, he dismisses him from any further partnership. Because this third servant has lost the master's trust. Remember that Jesus is telling us this story as a parable about his own time away and also our own master's return. I think with the point being that if we don't understand what has been entrusted to us during this time of waiting, that we may get an unwelcome and unwanted surprise when we see our master face to face again. Right? Jesus throughout the, the, the gospel of Matthew, has been talking about this incredible kingdom that he is imparting to his people, to his disciples. A kingdom of gifts and relationships and opportunities and ways of being. But it, it's not something that's meant to be buried until he comes back again. This is a, a kingdom of wealth that's to be invested here and now, even in the waiting. And so do we, do we take joy in investing what God has gifted us with in the ways that he has called us to live into with him? Or are we more afraid we're going to mess it up? More afraid about what could go wrong in this interim period? One thing that I think is exciting, an exciting opportunity we have as a church right now is with our own little bag of gold or, or talent that God has given us. I gave you these, these cards as you came in, and these are a, a way to, to maybe call us to be thinking and praying together as a church. For the last few years, our church has given generously to, to the needs of this church, but we've also found that over the last several years, we've operated at a net surplus. We've spent less than, than we have been given. So much so that the advisory board, the last few times we've met, sort of feels like we're, we're sitting on a talent of gold that, that we would desire to see, or that we sense God would desire to see, put to work in our community, rather than just held onto or, or put in the bank you know, to, to wait for a rainy day. So we're asking you to think about how might we invest that? How might we release that? How, how might that gift God has given us even move outside of our own walls and be part of God's kingdom work in this place? And so what we're asking you to do for the next couple weeks, between now and Easter Sunday, tuck this in a Bible or stick it on your refrigerator or somewhere that you'll see it. 
and we were asking that you would just start praying. Where might there be needs that aren't being met and that we could be a part of joining what God is up to in meeting? Maybe there are neighbors in your, in your community. Maybe there are needs you know of in the towns in which you live. Maybe there are, are needs that no one's doing anything about yet, and, and we might be able to invite God to, to lead us in a kingdom way into. Take these cards, pray about it, and then in the back half of April, um, Pete and others are, are going to invite you to think about maybe naming some of those things. And at that, at that time, you'll have a chance to write some things on the back of these cards and hand them back to us. And then our hope is that um, later at the end of the spring and into the first part of the summer, um, that the advisory board, that the, the missions committee, the prudential committee, the deacons might also help um, maybe put some of this money to work. But we, we want to do that as a body. We're inviting you into that with us. As we think about about that opportunity, not just with some financial resources the church has, but, but really with all of what God has given us. I want to look at the last of Jesus' three surprise stories here at the end of Matthew 25. Because I think it might tell us something about the kind of investment, the heart of investment that our master has, what he loves, what he wants his people to do. Matthew 25, 31, to the end of the chapter. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on a glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right, on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For when I was hungry and you gave me something to eat, I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? When did we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for the least, one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger. You did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison? And we did not help you. He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do 
for one of the least of these you did not do for me. And then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. This is Jesus' third and, and final surprise ending in this chapter. As many Commentators note this is less of a story than a, a telling of history, of future history. Right? Jesus tells what will happen when he comes again to, to judge the nations of the earth. And I think the story speaks for itself, right? It speaks to the priorities of our king and his kingdom. But I want to make one observation. Just like the other two stories we've looked at, this has a, a surprise ending as well. But in this case, everyone involved is surprised, not just one person in the story. Right? In this case, the surprise goes both ways, both for the righteous and the unrighteous, for the wise and the unwise. And the surprise in this story has to do with the presence of Jesus. Right? The whole time, the people in this story thought Jesus was away. Jesus had gone off to make a kingdom in, in the heavenly realms or wherever. Right? They're, they're in this period of waiting, and their assumption is Jesus isn't here with us. We're waiting for him to come back. So everyone in this story, when, when Jesus comes and, and speaks to them, all of them reply in unison. They say, Jesus, we didn't see you. Where did we see you? When did we see you? When were you before us? Right? If, if you were with us, gladly we would have shared our hospitality, our food, our clothes, our compassion with you. The difference is, as, as Blaise Pascal has famously said about this verse, on that day, there will be the, the revelation of great ignorance on both parts. The righteous will be surprised at how ignorant they have been of their own virtue. That all along they have been caring for Jesus himself. And the unrighteous will be ignorant at the enormity of their offense and their sin. Jesus says, whatever you did or you did not do to any of my image bearers, to any of my children, to any of these little ones, you either did it or did not do it unto me. I think Jesus is telling us that, that he is with us even in this moment of, of the in-between, even in this moment of waiting for his return. Every day in embodied forms of, of relationships and people, people that we love, people that make us crazy, people that we are tempted to hate, people that disgust us, people that we are jealous of. Jesus says, in every single one of those persons, you have an opportunity to live the kingdom today. Jesus is, is waiting for us in the here and in the now and in the, the image bearers he has placed us among. 
And so Jesus would, would have us open our eyes to see, to live out this kingdom together. I think there is an element of, of Jesus giving us these stories, right? They're surprising endings, but Jesus has told us the surprise ahead of time. Right, with this last story, this is a, a time yet to come. And, and we know the ending before it's happened. And that's Jesus' gift to us. And so what, what do we do with the knowledge of this story? Right, how do we allow it to appropriately freeze us, maybe convict us with its surprising ending? How do we allow it to help us find the heart of our king and our kingdom? And how do we shift our lives in keeping with the priorities it communicates? So that when Jesus does, in fact, come again, right, we won't be taken by surprise. We pray for us. Lord, would you make us a people who are appropriately vigilant, watchful, people whose lives are invested wholeheartedly in waiting for the kingdom's fullness to come. Lord, would you make us a people who know and perceive how greatly we have been gifted, how otherworldly the kingdom that we even possess today is on the earth. And that we would freely entrust that, entrust the embarrassment of riches and mercy and grace we've been given. Invest it outside of, of what makes us comfortable, outside of our own needs and, and desires. And Lord, would you help us to see your presence in the least of these? That as a king, your great desire is that the least in your kingdom would be dignified and treated as you are. Lord, we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.